The following sermon was preached at Redeeming Grace Fellowship. For more information about RGF, please visit our website at www.rgf.church. Please feel free to make copies of this sermon or distribute to friends and family. But please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. turn in your Bible to Acts chapter 9. This morning we're continuing to work our way through the book of Acts. Uh, We are presently looking at the conversion of Saul of Tarsus, the conversion of the great Apostle Paul. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you for your word uh, this morning. Your word is life, your word is truth, and uh, we thank you for it. And we pray now that you would give to all of us eyes to see and ears to hear, uh, minds to understand and hearts to obey what your spirit is saying to us this morning through your word. Anoint me, I pray, to proclaim it. May I proclaim it accurately and clearly. And may you accomplish through the preaching of your word this morning uh, the eternal purposes for which you send it. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Our text this morning is verses 10 through 19, but let's begin reading at verse 1. Acts chapter 9, verse 1. But Paul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way... Men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Let's stop there for a moment. Last week, Brother Gene did a... Tremendous job of powerfully explaining these verses. And if you were not here, I strongly encourage you to go online and to listen to that message. And in these verses, specifically verses 1 and 2, we saw Saul, the persecutor of the church. And the magnitude of that description should not be taken lightly by us. It was Saul of Tarsus who was living and breathing threats and violence, and murder. He was a man who was filled with hatred and violence toward anybody who would claim allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ. And it was out of that violent and hate-filled heart that he sought letters from the chief priests. Uh, He had done his work in Jerusalem. He felt it was time for him to expand his persecution. And so he receives letters from the high priest to go out to the synagogues in Damascus to see if there are any belonging to the way. He was not expecting to encounter Jesus on the way. In fact, Luke makes a little play on words here. Saul was persecuting the way, and it is on the way to Damascus that he finds the Lord. Jesus appears to him and overwhelms him knocks him to the ground, and then in that brilliant light he asks, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul, in a sense of dazed confusion, says, who are you, Lord? He recognized, you know, the symbolism of the light as divine presence. I mean, he understood there was a voice from heaven. He he, he recognizes the Lord, but can't for the life of him make heads or tails out of, why are you persecuting me? And then the words that would forever be emblazoned on his heart, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. He encounters the living Christ. He he goes blind. And that blindness is very significant. Understand that. 
God had told his people under the old covenant that if they broke the covenant, if they were unfaithful to the covenant, that they would grope around at midday blind. And that is exactly what happens to Saul of Tarsus. In fact, his blindness would be a terribly frightening parable to him about his real spiritual state. Although he was religious, although he was zealous, although he upheld the traditions of of the fathers, he was blind and he was under the curse for covenant infidelity, which would have been absolutely unfathomable to this obedient, law-keeping Jew. For three days, his spiritual state would sink in and his blindness would become more and more real to him. Not just the physical blindness, but the spiritual blindness. And you can imagine that during those three days in which he took neither food nor drink, he must have mulled over text after text after text of the Old Testament. Being raised up in the tradition of the Pharisees, he would have, met, he would have had massive amounts of, of Hebrew scripture committed to memory. And no doubt during those three days, he mulled over passage after passage after passage. No doubt also mulling over arrest after arrest after arrest. Not just thinking about passages that he obviously had misunderstood in his Judaism, but also the look of horror and terror on the face of those he persecuted. And no doubt over and over and over again during those three days and nights, he heard ringing in his ears, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And that brings us to verse 10. And we read these uh, these words. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, I wonder if he would have said that if he knew what Jesus was about to tell him to do. But he says, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go. For he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, The Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized. And taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. In verse 10, we are introduced to a disciple by the name of Ananias. This obviously is not the Ananias who died back in chapter 5. Ananias was a fairly common Jewish name. And Ananias is identified as a disciple. And remember, up until Acts chapter 11 in Antioch, all Christians would, that would be what they were called, disciples. It was in, it was in Antioch that they were first called Christians. Now, Paul, later recounting his testimony in Acts chapter 22, he would identify Ananias as a devout Jew who was respected by all the Jews in Damascus. And so this devout man, this Ananias, he is contacted by the Lord. And that is, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus says to him in a vision, he calls his name Ananias. And then in typical responding to the Lord in vision fashion, he says, here I am, Lord. And then we have this direct command. He says literally, arising, is the tense, go to the street called straight. And what's interesting is that almost all all the commentaries tell us that, that even to this day in Damascus, this is the main thoroughfare that runs from east to west. 
And, and it's the most uh, – well, it, it, it is to Damascus, I guess, what Main Street is to most places today. And so he tells him to go to a house on this street called Straight. Go find the house of Judas. And you're going to find a person by the name of Saul of Tarsus. And then the Lord tells Ananias, for behold, he is praying. He is praying. And you have to consider the verb tense here. Because the idea is, arise and go now. And he means right now. Because he's praying now. Don't delay. He's praying even now. All right? And, and don't, don't, we don't want to read past this too quickly. Here he is, three days. Here Saul is, three days. No food, no water. Mulling over, agonizing over these things. And the Lord says he is praying even now. And could you imagine what that time of prayer looked like for Saul of Tarsus at that particular point? Understand, God is providentially in control of the timing of everything. And God says right now, now is the opportune time. He's praying. He's at the point where he's ripe. He is ready for someone to go into his life and to speak to him about me. You could imagine, you know, one thing that Saul of Tarsus would not have had to, you know, transition from being, you know, a Pharisee to a Christian would have been his prayer life. The Pharisees were very ardent prayers. The Apostle Paul would continue in that wonderful discipline. But you could imagine, here is Saul of Tarsus, who is engaged in ardent, fervent prayer, wrestling with God. Not wrestling for for triumph, like, you know, Israel of old, but just wrestling with God for understanding. For understanding of what, what just happened. You could imagine the state of mind and the emotional state that he was in at this point. And he's wrestling with God for understanding. He must have been wrestling with God also for, for a sense of forgiveness. I mean, could you imagine what the prayer time would have been like as he confessed, Lord, Lord, I was there. I gave my hearty approval to Stephen Stoning. I've been responsible for the, the breaking up of families. I've been responsible... For, for, for other deaths. And on and on, the request for forgiveness must have gone. And as he's engaged in prayer, wrestling in prayer, maybe, maybe, maybe it was during that time. The very thing that made Jesus of Nazareth so hideous to him, that he had been hanged on a tree, ended up becoming the most beautiful thing about Jesus of Nazareth for him. That he stood in his place and bore the curse for Saul. Saul himself is going to have a vision. Okay? And this is still part of the quote of what Jesus is telling Ananias. Verse 12. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias. The Lord says, that's you, Ananias. Come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. Now, what's going on, at least in terms of Saul's vision, is that that vision is is, is preparatory. This messenger is coming to you, and he's coming to bring you your sight. And and, and again, I don't think that we can reduce that simply to he's coming to restore your physical sight. But he's coming to bring you spiritual sight. He's coming to bring you truth. He's coming to bring you understanding into this whole thing. Now, this is a fairly tall order, <laughs> and Ananias understands it's a tall order. And in verse 13, I mean, you really can't blame Ananias here. Ananias answers in verse 13, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. Now, this is really a subtle protest by Ananias. He's really, Lord, you know about this, right? You're sending me to go to him? Now, I don't know if Ananias had ever prayed any of the maybe imprecatory psalms for Saul of Tarsus. Perhaps he did. Saul was an obvious enemy of the gospel, and he says, Lord, you know, there are reports going around. You could imagine very easily that what was going on in Jerusalem began to be circulated among all the Christians everywhere in the vicinity who would have had anything to do with the saints in Jerusalem, and they would have known about Saul of Tarsus. No doubt the reports of the way in which 
the apostles were treated by the sin Hedron had gone forth, and then followed up by Saul of Tarsus and his violent and aggressive persecution of the church. I mean, the reports would have been going all over the place. And notice what Ananias said. This, this is so interesting. He says, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints. Your saints. Speaking to Jesus. To your holy ones. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who do what? Call on your name. Your name. And in this, don't miss this, there's a very strong emphasis here on the deity of Christ. And basically the, the, the you know, Ananias' subtle protest goes like this, Lord, we know about this guy. And his intentions are only for evil. The worst kind of evil you could imagine. And this man is doing harm to your people, Lord. Why do you want me to go see him? Right? You could imagine. And and notice, the Lord patiently says to him in verse 15, Go. Now, by the way, that, 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 that was all Jesus really needed to say, right? Go. And Ananias would have known what to do. But in his patience and his kindness, as our Savior, he gives an explanation here. Um, and here's the Lord's plan. So he says, go because I have a plan for him. Go because I have a plan for him. And the first thing that Jesus tells Ananias is, he is an elect vessel. He is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. He tells Ananias, Saul is an elect vessel, a chosen instrument. Now, he is saying more than, but not less than, okay, that he's one of the elect. Okay, that's part of it, but it's more than that. I mean, that's obviously implied in saying he's a chosen or elect instrument or vessel. But he's saying more than that when he says he's an elect or chosen instrument. He's saying he's a specially chosen instrument. And notice that little prepositional phrase, of mine. He is a chosen instrument of mine or for me. Jesus says, I have put special claims on him. I'm going to use him in a special way. I have special plans for him. And you, Ananias, are going to be a part of recruiting, as it were. And this would be a recruitment in which there would be no resistance on the recruited's part. He is elect. He is a vessel, an instrument for me. Then Jesus says he must carry my name or Bear my name. Can you imagine the utter shock that Ananias must have felt when he heard that? Think about it. Does God actually take enemies and say they are chosen vessels for me, for my purposes? And of course the answer is yes. Yes. The Lord is sovereign over everything, including the wicked for the day of trouble. Proverbs 16 verse Forces. He's made everything for its purpose. You know, God used a lot of people for his chosen instruments, as his chosen instruments, that never knew his saving love. Nebuchadnezzar, right? Well, maybe he did. Um, Cyrus. Um, I mean, they were chosen instruments. And, and, and to accomplish his purposes in, in, in ways that absolutely, you know, confound God's people and his enemies alike. And so it's one thing to say that this man is a violent, aggressive persecutor of the that this that this man who is a violent and aggressive persecutor of the church is a chosen instrument for me. But then when he turns around and says he's actually going to carry, he's going to bear my name. How could that be? How could that happen? There's only one way that could happen. And Ananias must have realized that he, Jesus, 
is going to do something to change this man's heart. Amen? It's the only way. He is at work doing that which he alone can do and that which he does best. And even though the great hymn writer William Cowper wouldn't come along for another 1,700 years, you know that Ananias must have had something ringing in his heart that said, God moves in a mysterious way his wonders to perform. Amen? Could there be a more mysterious way than taking this violent persecutor of the church and making him the great proclaimer of the gospel? No, of course not. Right? Could there be a greater wonder than God changing that man's heart? He's going to be a chosen vessel of mine, and he's going to carry my name. That is, he's going to carry, he's going to bear, he's going to make known my name. And notice this. He says, before Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. All three of these we will see happen before our very eyes in the book of Acts. The Apostle Paul, of course, will become known as who? The Apostle to the Gentiles. Throughout the halls of church history, it would be the Apostle Paul who would forever be known as the Apostle to the Gentiles. The Gentiles would be his mission field, and he would devote his life to it. He would also make his name known before kings. We'll see that at the end of the book of Acts, how he stands before governors and kings bearing witness to the Lord Jesus and then also to the children of Israel, although most of the time he carried the Lord's name before the Jews, it, it ended in a riot in which he had to leave in a hurry. But nevertheless, he made Christ's name known before them also. And then notice what Jesus says next in verse 16. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. How much he must suffer for the sake of my name. The one who had caused so much suffering because of the name of Christ, will now be the one who will suffer so much for the name of Christ. And, and, and just so there's no misunderstanding, this is not some sort of divine you know, tit for tat. You've caused suffering and now I'm going to make you suffer. That's not what's going on here. That's not the way you should read this at all. This is not you know, retributive suffering. This is not suffering for Jesus to get even with, with one who caused so much suffering to him and to his people. If it was up to us, it would be like that many times, right? But that's not what's happening here. That's not it at all, because the simple fact of the matter is that when the Lord Jesus died, he died in Paul's place, amen? And he paid for all of Paul's sins so that Paul would never suffer for any of his sins. Um, but that doesn't mean that we don't suffer for the sake of the gospel. And that was part of God's plan for Paul. He says, the one who has caused so much suffering is now going to propagate the gospel through suffering. For my sake, the very gospel that he tried to destroy. Just turn over quickly to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Beginning in verse 22, speaking of the super apostles who were false apostles, 2 Corinthians 11, verse 22. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I am talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardships, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Just a list of some of that, 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 that he, some of the things he would suffer by the ordination of his Lord for his name's sake. And Paul understands this suffering. He understands this suffering. 
2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 10. Here the apostle says, Therefore I endure everything, that is, all of the suffering I go through, the imprisonments, the beating, you name it. I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. There you see, and he sees, and he understands, and he knows the purpose for his suffering. The Apostle Paul would understand very clearly and teach very clearly that Christ's sufferings were the propitiation for our sins. Paul's sufferings would be for the propagation of the gospel. And so here the Apostle Paul is one who has been ordained to promote the gospel through his sufferings. Understand, you know, we we so often get this wrong. You know, God ordains suffering for the promotion and propagation of the gospel. Because, understand this, because when men and women are willing to suffer for the sake of the gospel, they demonstrate how much they value the gospel. And then it is promoted among those who see how much they value it. And if there's anything that was clear in the Apostle Paul's life, it is that the Lord has ordained a path of suffering for him so that through that suffering, he would promote the very gospel that he had sought to destroy. He would suffer. He'd suffer a lot. But with every beating, every imprisonment, with every day and night without food, with every time somebody abandoned him, He understood that it fit into a divine plan, and it was God's way to promote the gospel through his suffering. I think it goes without saying that that kind of evangelism very rarely resonates with God's people today. The idea of winning the loss through suffering for the gospel's sake is not something most Christians today readily embrace. All right, back in Acts, chapter 9, verse 17. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, and I love this, Brother Saul, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Here in verse 17, we see Ananias begin to minister to Saul. He lays hands on him. You can imagine the picture fairly easily in your mind. Here is Saul. He's probably locked up in a room praying at that very moment. Ananias walks in, walks right over to him, lays his hands on him. And he lays his hands on him probably for a number of reasons. You know, it's safe to assume that he probably had had no human contact for the last three days. Safe to assume that in the midst of this agonizing three days, he was longing to know that God had indeed accepted him. So Ananias goes in, lays his hands on him, and he says, Brother Saul. I mean, he was, Ananias was, as, as, as it were, the hands of Jesus to Saul. And he says to him, I'm here to help you regain your sight. And so these hands are hands of healing and, and for you to receive the Holy Spirit. And so his hands are the implementation of, implementations by which Saul of Tarsus would receive the Holy Spirit. Brother Saul. I mean, you're, you're, you're one of the family now. Amen? Isn't that what he's saying? And this isn't just brother in the sense, well, you're my Jewish brother. No, no. You know, this is brother, brother. This is Christian brother. It really is a wonderful thing when you're able to call someone brother or sister, isn't it? When I first became a Christian back in 1987, One of the things I loved most about my new life in Christ was the fact of calling one another brother and sister. It's just a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful reality. Amen? Don't ever take that for granted. Christ, he takes us. And come on, we, we look around this room. Some of us, if it wasn't for Christ, perhaps we'd have nothing else in common. 
But in Christ, we have everything in common. Amen? Everything that counts. And he makes us brothers and sisters. Even, and, and, and this is a struggle, you know, growing up in an Italian-American home and family is very important and, and uh, get involved in a lot of family things with the unsaved family members. But the reality is I think the brotherhood and the sisterhood of the saints is, is a greater brotherhood and sisterhood than even our physical relations. Amen? Our relations after the flood. It's, it's an incredible thing that he goes in there and he calls him Brother Saul. And so here's Ananias, and he walks in, and here's the Osama bin Laden of his day, <laughs> in a manner of speaking. And he touches him, calls him brother. And, you know, I don't think Ananias was a vindictive man, but, but he probably got a little charge saying to him, the Lord sent me. Kurios, Yahweh sent me. You know, Jesus, the one who appeared to you on the way, and in his mind thinking, you know, the one you were persecuting. He sent me. And you just have to appreciate that, that what, what's happening. I mean, Saul is on his way to destroy the way. And Jesus appears to him on the way. On the way to destroy the way. And Ananias says, he's the one who appeared to you. And more confirmation. Note the use of, of the word Lord here. I, I sort of skipped over that quickly before, but there, there, there's a very strong uh, emphasis on the deity of Christ here. Remember, Saul is persecuting God's, uh, uh, you know, uh, and I says he's persecuting your people. Right? God's people are the saints. Right? But here, Ananias says to him, your saints all those calling on your name, Ananias said to him before, are being persecuted. And that comes from Joel chapter 2. It's whoever calls on the name of Yahweh shall be saved. And here it's those who are calling on your name, right? And here we have Lord again. I mean, this is, this is, this is Jesus Christ. God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, And Ananias comes in and he says, receive your sight, receive the Holy Spirit. Scales fall off of his eyes. And what's interesting is in verse 18, it simply says, in verse 18, and immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. And what's interesting is that oftentimes in the book of Acts, when there is some kind of healing, Luke usually goes into some kind of detail. Being a physician, having a natural interest in these things, but here it's 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 kind of ambiguous. Not much is said. I mean, he had something on his eyes. Ananias laid hands on him and prayed for him, and something came off his eyes. It could be that here, Luke, not wanting anything to cloud the spiritual reality of what was happening, just says the straightforward fact and focuses on the reality that Saul of Tarsus at this point regains his sight. The physical event, again, symbolizing that Saul's spiritual blindness had been overcome and he could now see and understand the truth. Calvin puts it like this, for since Christ is the son, S-U-N, S-U-N, the son of righteousness, when we see without him, we are not seeing at all. And it is only as he opens the eyes of our mind that we can See, and that had happened to Saul, symbolized by the scales falling off his physical eyes and that his physical sight had been restored. So here Saul of Tarsus is able to see, and boy, could he see, amen? <laughs> and you could imagine that when the eyes of Saul of Tarsus were opened, things looked very, very different. And the first thing, what was the first thing he would have seen? Ananias. Who, three days before, what would Saul of Tarsus done to him if he could have gotten a hold of him, right? And now he looks at a man who is calling him brother. And then, finally, Paul is baptized, and then eats, and is strengthened. Think about that. Three days without food, three days without water, and what does he do? 
he follows Christ in the waters of baptism before he takes care of his physical needs. Look over at Acts 22. He tells the story and adds a few details for us. Acts 22, and this will endear Ananias to you even more. Verse 12, here's Paul giving his testimony, and he says, And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who live there, came to me and standing by me said, Brother Saul. First of all, I think it's neat that he would remember him calling him brother, right? Telling you it was significant. It was very significant, and it was very significant to Saul. Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour, I received my sight and saw him. And he said, the God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. And so before he ever took a bite of food, before he ever took a drink of water, he got up and followed Christ in the waters of baptism. And just stop and think about what a wonderful scene this is. Here is this man who is in such agony. And the Lord sends a man named Ananias, not an apostle, not a deacon as far as we know, I mean, outside of being mentioned in these accounts, we we don't really know anything about him. He was just an ordinary disciple of Jesus. And God used him to minister to the one who would be the greatest apostle and greatest Christian and greatest missionary and greatest theologian of all times. F.F. Bruce comments, It was as the spokesman of Christ that Ananias went to Saul. He had nothing to say beyond the words that the Lord put in his mouth. Ananias uttered the words, but as he did so, it was Christ himself who commissions Saul to be his ambassador. Ananias laid hands on Saul, but it was the power of Christ in that same moment, enlightening his eyes and filling him with the spirit. And then he says, as F.F. Bruce says, Ananias has an honored place in sacred history and a special claim on the gratitude of all who in one way or another have entered into the blessing that stems from the life and work of the apostle to the Gentiles. Just a certain disciple named Ananias. You never know who you may end up ministering to, right? You never know. Now, as we look at Saul's conversion, um, the details of conversion are never really nice and neat, are they? You know, we like nice and neat. We like theologically nice and neat. In fact, you know, we love our biblical, you know, order salutis, the order of salvation. I mean, we know theologically how it happens, right? We've got it down. You know, we think in terms of, okay, conviction and, and, and awakening and as an effectual calling and, you know, new birth, conversion, faith, repentance, right? We try to put it all together. You read the account of Saul, there are so many things we don't know. When was he actually truly converted in this account? We don't really know. It's simply speculation to think about it. But what we see, what we see is a real conversion. Amen? A real conversion. That's what we see. You know, we may not be able to figure out all the details. You know, we may not be able to have a nice little timeline. Well, this happened on day one and this happened on day two. This happened, you know, he had seven ounces of conviction on day one and, you know, 12 more ounces of conviction on day two. By day three, he was a full-blown disciple of the Lord Jesus You know, we don't know any of that, but what we see is this. What we see is this, an ordinary disciple coming and ministering to the one who would become the greatest apostle of all and the one who was truly converted 180 degrees. Amen? He ate some food, verse 19, and was strengthened. And then as we'll see next week, in the following verses, he was raring to go. (laughs) He won't lose any zeal, but it will be zeal without knowledge. It will, it will be zeal with knowledge, no longer zeal without knowledge. Now, what do we learn from this? What do we learn from Paul's convert? Just a few thoughts, and then we'll close. First of all, how do we pray for the enemies of God and the enemies of the gospel? You know, the question often arises, is it proper for Christians to pray for judgment upon and even the destruction of God's enemies and the enemies of the gospel? And this is an important question. 
And a sub- substantive biblical answer to this question is beyond the scope of this morning's message. The short answer is yes, I believe it can be proper and at times even necessary for Christians to pray in that way concerning the enemies of God and his gospel. I mean, we have the imprecatory Psalms, right? But again, just how we would apply them today is beyond the scope of this message. Uh, There are two excellent books on that subject, if you're interested. One is called War Psalms of the Prince of Peace, War Psalms of the Prince of Peace, by James Adams. Another one is called Praying Curses by Daniel Nearbass. Praying Curses. Right, that's all I'll say about that. I bring it up. I bring up praying against God's enemies and the imprecatory psalms because what we have here in Saul is one of God's enemies. Now, we're all God's enemies. I understand that. Okay, We are all God's enemies. Right? We are all at enmity with God uh, in our fallen state. But some actively oppose, as Saul did, Christ and his gospel, Christ and his people. And they persecute, and they uh, uh, attack, and they fight against. You know, Saul was one of those, okay? And uh, he was one of God's enemies. And what we see in the conversion of Saul of Tarsus is God actually subduing one of his enemies, And this is what we see in his conversion. You understand, God can subdue his enemies either by converting them, right, or by killing them. And he's equally just and right in in, in both, right? I mean, who are we to say? Although I, I do believe in the former. When he converts them, he gets more glory. Uh, I think back years ago, however many years now, uh, to the arrest and the trial of Saddam Hussein. Could you imagine if at his trial he stood and said, I have an announcement to make. Last night in my cell, somebody gave me an Arabic Bible, and I read it, and I want to publicly profess faith in Jesus Christ. Could you imagine that? If you're like me, you were probably thinking, when are they going to hang him? Right? I want to see it. Come on. Let's go. Get it over with. Kill him already. I'm sure many Christians felt that way. What a rotten, evil, terrible human being. And it's true. And by the standards of human justice and, and, and God's justice, he deserved to die. But guess what? And he did die. But guess what? God can subdue an enemy not just through, you know, the hangman's noose, but through the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think that's how we ought to pray. Um, and even if we are in a, in, a, in a place where we're praying those imprecatory psalms, imploring God's judgment on his enemies and the destruction of his enemies, we, we need to pray with the realization and, and even the desire that God would bring an end to that enemy by bringing him to the cross of Christ. Amen? Um, because that's what God did with Saul. That's what God did with Saul. I doubt, I really doubt that any of those early disciples suffering under Saul's reign ever thought that God would save him. And even if they prayed for God to save him, I doubt they believed that he would. I mean, there were families. There were those whose families had been broken up, whose lives had been devastated. And I'm sure people were crying out, Lord, stop this man. Stop this man. He's evil. He's doing harm to people who love you. Do something to stop him. And God says, I hear that imprecatory prayer, and I'm going to stop him. But I'm going to stop him in a way that you could never imagine. And that's what he did. Secondly, we also see in Saul's conversion the power of sovereign grace. He wasn't on the road seeking anything other than to devour Christians. And God arrested him with free, sovereign grace. And that same grace is operative in anyone who calls on the name of the Lord. Now, you may not have been a violent aggressor or persecutor of the church, or maybe some of you were, I don't know. Uh, You may not have been a blasphemer, but the same sovereign grace that stopped Saul of Tarsus in his tracks and turned him 180 degrees is the same grace that woke us up, more than woke us up, that, that raised us from spiritual death 
to spiritual life when we were dead in trespasses and sins and brought us to new life in Jesus Christ. Thirdly, we also see in all of this, really the, the, uh, we see evidence for Christ and for Christianity. Samuel Johnson wrote a number of years ago, here is a treatise, speaking of Acts 9, to which infidelity has never been able to fabricate a specious response, a specious answer. What does that mean? In other words, read Acts chapter 9 and come up with any other explanation for the events that are recorded here and that we know are borne out in the rest of the history of the Christian church and come up with any other explanation of how you could take a Jewish man who was filled with hate, filled with zeal, who was responsible for dozens if not hundreds of arrests and even murders and was on his way to do more mayhem and he was stopped in his tracks and not just brought into the faith but becomes the greatest proponent of that faith. Stop and think about that testimony for the truthfulness of the Christian faith that Saul's conversion is. Amen? What an evidence that is. There's no plausible answer or explanation of how a hate-mongering persecutor could be turned 180 degrees and then willingly suffer and eventually die for the Christ whom he hated and for the faith he once tried to destroy. There's no other explanation than the truthfulness of the gospel. Amen? It's absolutely amazing. Next to the empty tomb, perhaps the Apostle Paul stands as the greatest piece of evidence for the truthfulness of the resurrected Christ and the truth of Christianity. There's one more thing in this passage that we can't pass over, and that is Paul and his past grievous sins. There's something interesting in Paul's life, that towards the end of his life, probably around A.D. 63 or some 30 years after the events of Acts 9, he would write to his young protege, Timothy. He would write these words in 1 Timothy 1, verse 15, this, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of, who, of whom I am the foremost. I am the chief of sinners. I am the, the, the first of sinners. I am the foremost of sinners. Notice that in that statement of the aged apostle, the experienced apostle, the blessed apostle, the sanctified apostle, that he does not say Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I was the foremost, of whom I was the chief. He doesn't say it in the past tense. He says it in the present tense, among whom I am chief. There would be something about Paul's past, something about his history that he would never, ever be able to expunge from his mind. And even in that same letter to Timothy, he reminds Timothy that, that he was once a blasphemer and a, and a violent persecutor, and he was one who hated Jesus Christ. Those sins, those things that were emblazoned on his mind would forever make up a part of who he was. But the same apostle who says, of whom I am foremost, okay, is also the same apostle who says... I press on to make it my own. No, I'm sorry. He says, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And then he says also, I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Now, is, is there a tension there? Does there seem to be a little bit of a conflict there? Yeah. The Apostle Paul would never forget that there was a time he was a blasphemer of Christ and the great persecutor of Christ's church, a hater of Christ and a hater of Christians. But he also was able to press ahead in the full confidence of knowing that his sin was nailed to the cross. Amen? Each and every one of them. And although he could say, I'm the chief of sinners, he could also say that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
And, you know, Paul actually felt that tension. And not only felt it, but he knew that it existed for a reason. And that reason is so that he would be an example to all of the patience of God in saving the vilest offender who truly believes. Paul would not only Paul not only would stand as a monument of, of you know verification of the truth of the gospel, but he also forever would stand as a monument that the saving grace of God has no limits. No matter what you've done, no matter how vile your sins, no matter how wretched your heart, no matter how darkened your mind, no matter how shameful or disgraceful the things that you've done, there is a Savior who can wash away, whose blood can wash away all of your sins. And Paul is living proof. The vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus a pardon receives. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for grace that knocks people to the ground. We thank you, Lord, for a grace that's not afraid to rough people up. We thank you for a grace that reaches down to those who are so filled with their own sin and their own hate, and yet a grace that doesn't leave them there but pulls them up out of their sin and brings them to the Lord Jesus. Thank you for matchless and marvelous grace. Thank you for the saving power of Jesus Christ. And we, we thank you for Saul's conversion. Lord, we pray for those who are here this morning who do not know you. Perhaps they feel their sins are so bad you could never forgive them. We pray that even this morning they would consider what you did with this man Saul and they would come with boldness to the Lord Jesus who is a sufficient Savior to all who come to him in faith and repentance. Lord, thank you for Paul. Thank you for his example. Thank you for his ministry. Father, each one of us here has benefited from what you've done with and through this chosen instrument. And Lord, we pray that we would be quick to minister to people, that we would be quick to obey your voice, to do what we're told. Lord, your plans are so wonderful. They go so far beyond anything we could fathom. And we rejoice that we get to be a part of them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.